Hey everybody, it's Andy. Welcome or welcome back to the Decatur City Church Podcast. At the end of this episode, we would love it if you would take just a moment to download the Decatur City Church app where you can find access to all of our recent message content. And the app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend. But most importantly, I hope you enjoy the following presentation and I hope it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Who doesn't want a fast car, right? I mean, to me, I think the perfect um, weekend sounds like that ultimate, uh, what is that, that Porsche driving experience? That sounds remarkable. Anybody done that yet? Anybody? Come? Nobody. Okay, I haven't either. I would love to do that. Just plug, shameless plug there. Anybody has a connection? Um, uh, no, seriously. So if I could drive anything right now, um, money aside, which obviously it's not, um, 67 Shelby GT for me. That would be, yeah, come on. There is. Somebody appreciates good cars. I can't afford it. But uh, that would be fantastic. But um, when I was 16, it wasn't a 67 Shelby GT. It was this right here. Um, come on. Yeah, look at that. Anybody know what that is? Yeah, it's a Mitsubishi. Look at some car people in the 11 o'clock service. I love it. It's a, a 1996 Mitsubishi 3000 GT, 0 to 60 in just under 4.8 seconds, 320 horsepower, what every 16-year-old boy should drive for their first car, right? At least that's what I thought. My parents thought this should be my first car. Look at there. Yeah. Anybody know what that one is? It's a Honda Accord, 92 edition EX. It was the sports model though, so uh, hey, it was two door. That's about the last thing it had in common with the 3000 GT. But um, uh, I really wanted the sports car. And I, looking back, I mean, my parents were so great to get me that car. It was a fantastic car, lasted me all the way through college. Um, I never should have had the sports car, um, but that's what I really wanted. And I remember I would bring it up periodically to my dad and to his credit, he did this really cool thing. Like every time I brought up the fact that I wanted to get rid of the Accord for the 3000 GT, instead of just telling me no, which is 100% how I would parent today, um, he would be like, hey, look, I bought you a car. I spent uh, what I felt like I should spend on your first car. I bought you a really good car. It's honestly just not worth it to me. But if it's worth it to you, by all means, if you can figure out how to get it, you go for it. But here's what you need to know. I'm just not gonna spend any more money on your car. Um, and so what I lacked in smarts, I made up for in determination. And so I set out to figure out how to get the 3000 GT. And you can verify this story with my parents. Like literally the summer before my senior year, I completely reprioritized my entire schedule. I spent every day, I would wake up every morning and I would drive to all the different dealerships across the Atlanta area that sold these cars. And I would make up these fantastical stories, um, trying to convince these dealers that they should trade me their sports car for my Accord, like straight up. Um, and nobody would do it. I couldn't figure out why nobody would ever trade. But um, when I ran out of dealerships, I went to this magazine called Auto Trader, because I'm old and the internet wasn't a thing. Um, but in Auto Trader, you would literally call people like on their home phone, and you would talk to them about the cars they were trying to sell. And so I would find slightly used versions of this car, and I would try to convince people to trade me. And again, I struck out. Nobody would trade me. But um, apparently it wasn't worth it enough for me to go get a job um, so I could like make up the difference. But, uh, but I did. I spent an entire summer trying to figure out how to get this car. And I never did. And what's kind of funny now is I could totally like buy that car now, especially the 1996 edition. Um, 
if I wanted to reprioritize some things, but I don't, right? Like all of my priorities are different now and I have kids and I pay my own insurance and there's not a chance I'm gonna spend that kind of money on a sports car right now. It just doesn't make any sense. And we make these decisions like all the time, right? Maybe for you, it's not a car or it's not money. Uh, Maybe for you, it was a job. Like you had the really cool job. You had the job that all of us thought we wanted. You got to travel everywhere. Um, You got to stay in really nice hotels. You were barely at home. You flew first class everywhere. I mean, you were always somewhere amazing, right? And then you met somebody and then you decided to have kids and you decided to settle down and all of a sudden T-ball became important and parent-teacher conferences and your priorities changed. And so you changed careers so that you could focus more on your family. Like people do that all the time, or you maybe have a really great hobby and you spend your free time doing this hobby and you're really good at it. Like you've known among your friends as somebody who is fantastic at this hobby, but you decided you wanted a a different future. You decided you wanted to write a different story for yourself. And so you took all of your free time, you gave up that hobby for a season and you went back to school, right? And you wrote a new story and now you have a new future. And now that hobby is part of your life again, but like you changed your priorities based on what was worth it to you. It's something we've all done. And if you haven't done this yet, if you haven't found something or you haven't found someone that's worth changing your priorities for, like eventually you will. Something will come along that will be worth it to you to make you change what you prioritize. Like all of you with kids, right? If your kid got sick and insurance wouldn't cover the medication, like you'd get a second job. I would get a second job. I'd get a third job. I'd sell my plasma, my kidneys, my organs, that garage queen, that car that nobody can touch. Like it would be gone in a heartbeat if I needed to raise money so that my kids could be better because they're so important to me, right? Like I read this story about a dad who had spent his entire life curating this amazing like unbelievable bourbon collection. Like anybody like bourbon? Don't, don't raise your hand, we're in church, don't do that. Um, you almost did, a couple of you were like, is that a trick question, can I do that? Don't do that. Uh, but like, no, he, he like, I mean, rare, like super hard to find bottles of bourbon, right? And then he finds out that his son has leukemia. All of a sudden that bourbon didn't matter to him at all. Like he started this auction. He literally auctioned off his entire collection, raised hundreds of thousands of dollars, donated it all to leukemia research because he wants his child to get better because all of a sudden it was worth it to him. Like you would do whatever it takes because it's worth like whatever we have. Like, right, we would all do the same thing. Every single one of us, we would figure it out. We'd be willing to trade what we thought was most important when all of a sudden something new came along that was way more important to us. It would be worth it to us. Well, today, I want to start this conversation. It's actually gonna take place over the next couple of weeks. Um, I want us to take a look at several stories from the New Testament uh, that really kind of explain this thing that's really not that much of a phenomenon. It happens to all of us, but like, I wanna take a closer look at what it is that's really going on and what is and isn't worth it, especially as it relates to faith. More specifically, as it relates to Jesus. Because here's the thing. Almost everybody I know right now is asking a very similar question. Whether you're a follower of Jesus, or you're trying to decide if you wanna be a follower of Jesus, or or whatever, wherever you fall on that spectrum, however you feel about faith, feels like everybody is asking the question, is Jesus worth following? Like, is he worth following? Like, I know he was like maybe when I was a kid and I was growing up or like, I know my parents said he was or, but like right now, like, 
is he still worth following? Like, is this faith thing, is, is church, is all of this still, like, is it still worth, like, changing for? Is it still worth reprioritizing my life around? I mean, think about all we've been through. I mean, in light of a, a pandemic and vaccination discussions and booster discussions and culture wars and political fights and tensions and neighbors going to literally war with neighbors and countries, like, falling apart and tension, like, all over the place. Like, it doesn't seem like it's really getting better. So like, is it worth it? Like, is Jesus worth following? And I think a lot of times we get afraid of that question. I've seen a lot of churches kind of get afraid of that question and want to shy away from that question. And I actually don't think we should. I think it's a question that every single one of us at some point or another, especially if you're trying to decide if you want to follow Jesus, I think it's a question we should all ask. And I think it's a question that actually brings us a lot closer to the first century followers of Jesus than we might imagine. I think it's a question they probably wrestled with often. And to show you, I want us to do something a little bit different today. Today, as you're sitting here, I want you to try to imagine something with me. I want you to try to imagine that we're all living about 30 years after Jesus died. Okay, so like if it helps you, like close your eyes, whatever you need to do. Like I want you to kind of get in character, get in scene, kind of really think about this. Like think about this. It's 30 years after Jesus died. I mean, you've seen some remarkable things in your life. I mean, you heard the stories, like the legend grew of this carpenter from Nazareth who claimed he was the Messiah that was gonna change the world. And then like he started a movement, like people started following him. And then he did the bizarre, like you heard the stories that he gave up his life for his followers. He died on a cross saying he was their king. And then you heard the stories that he not only died on a cross, but he brought himself back to life. And you've seen eyewitness accounts of people who, who were there, who know it was true. And you, you think about all that's changed. And as after he died, like you, you saw this movement start to spread, right? Like in all of a sudden places you had never heard of, like communities all over the Mediterranean realm started popping up and like little faith gatherings started popping up in these far off exotic places that you didn't know existed. But that feels like a distant memory now. This is 30 years later. And with the exception of like one really big day where thousands of people gathered and some really crazy miraculous stuff happened and people claimed they could hear the preacher talking, but it was all in different languages. Like outside of that, it really feels like the, the movement's kind of stalled. Like there's a convert here, maybe a new family over here. So, you know, every once in a while, a new gathering, but there really hasn't been a lot of traction. And it kind of is starting to feel like the Roman Empire, not Jesus's empire, is in charge. It feels like Caesar is way bigger of a deal than Jesus, and the persecution from Rome and the pressure from Rome, it's really starting to mount. In fact, you probably know somebody who, who lost their life because they decided to follow Jesus. And so you you kind of pile all those questions in like a good Christian would do and you pretend like they don't exist and you, you mosey over to your faith gathering that's gathered right there in your community. But it's not like this. I mean, there's not spinny lights, there's not fog, there's not comfortable chairs, there's not a big room. It's not like everybody knows about it because we got to do this in secret. So you, you mosey over to this secret gathering and it seems kind of familiar. I mean, you sing some songs and uh, they, they kind of make you feel a little bit better. They make you at least feel like those questions aren't real. Then somebody stands up and they share something out of the Old Testament, maybe a story about God's faithfulness to the nation of Israel. And you, you do, you start to feel your hopes 
come back a little bit. You start to think maybe this is worth it. And then there, there's a new letter that this guy named Paul wrote to a church. It wasn't to your church, but he wrote it and it's brand new. And this guy stands up and reads this letter, the entire thing. And everybody seems encouraged. So you decide maybe I should be encouraged. Maybe this is worth it. And then the pastor stands up and he decides to read out of one of the gospel accounts. And you, you know there are four of them, but your gathering only has one. That's all you could get your hands on. You have Matthew's account of Jesus's life. And you know it's a firsthand account, but you've heard it a lot. And you're kind of jaded and you're wondering if this is gonna work. And the pastor says, hey, I wanna read you guys something today. I wanna share with you something that Jesus shared with a bunch of people sitting on a lake shore uh, one day. And Jesus shared this talking to a group of people who were really trying to decide, is following Jesus worth it? Is giving your life and reprioritizing your life around him, is that a big deal? Should we all, should we do that? And your ears perk up because you think this is it. This is my moment. He's actually gonna address my tension. And the pastor starts to read and he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. And your mind's already spinning because you're thinking, what in the world does this have to do with my problems? How is this gonna answer anything? The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered that was hidden in a field. Well, in his excitement, he hid it again and he sold everything he owned to get enough money to buy the field. By this point, you have all kinds of questions, but the pastor just continues reading. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and he bought it. And the pastor closes the text and says a few words and sends you on your way and gathering is dismissed. And you're thinking, well, that didn't answer anything. In fact, I, I bet it probably didn't answer much for your first century self. And if you're sitting here today, I bet it doesn't answer a lot for you today. So, so what I want us to do is I want us to kind of back up. I want us to come out of this imagination exercise for a minute, few minutes. Let's come back to today. Let's come back to right here to, to reality. And let's just kind of walk through this because I suspect whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, whether these words are familiar to you or not, there's probably a couple things running through your head. First, these just seem like two pretty simple stories, right? Second, they seem like two pretty strange stories. It's kind of hard to know what these have to do with much of anything. And then third, if you're like me, these stories actually create all kinds of questions for me. I mean, I, my mind races with all of the questions. It certainly doesn't fill me with a whole lot of answers. So let's back up, let's slow down, Let's take a look at these stories and let's see if we can kind of figure out what's going on because I think there is something going on here that is really important to that question that I feel like so many of us are asking. So we'll, we'll back up. It starts off, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like. Well, first off, what is the kingdom of heaven? Uh, it's kind of embarrassing because this is it's like a central theme that Jesus talked on his entire ministry. It's one of the central themes of all of Matthew's gospel, but yet the church seems really kind of divided and confused about what this is. And it's it's not confusing at all. It certainly isn't anything that should be divisive. Like, so the, the kingdom of heaven is just really kind of a fancy way of talking about God's kingdom. It's how Jesus talked about God's ethics or God's economy or God's values or maybe his, his principles. And I think what throws us off is the word kingdom because most of us aren't very familiar with kingdoms. We're not looking for one. We're not really interested in one. We're not ruled by one. But to Jesus's audience, Kingdoms were like everyday occurrences, okay? They were underneath the rule of a kingdom, under the thumb of a kingdom, and they wanted out. In fact, they were looking for God to build an earthly powerful kingdom that would put them in charge and overthrow the earthly kingdoms that they were no longer in favor of. And so they really wanted, like all the people were looking to Jesus to be this ruler who would overpower kingdoms. And so Jesus had to talk a lot about what God's kingdom was and wasn't like, because the reality is God is setting up a kingdom. 
but it's not an earthly kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom or it's a heavenly kingdom. And it's a kingdom that is established by drastically different principles than anything we're used to. Principles that really feel kind of backwards. Principles that feel kind of upside down. Principles that feel pretty counterintuitive if you're trying to actually build something powerful. Jesus would talk about things like the idea that in God's kingdom, the subjects don't lay down their life for the king. Actually, in God's kingdom, the king would give up his life for his subjects. Jesus would talk about God's kingdom in terms of saying like, hey, this kingdom isn't about might making right. Like, in fact, the mighty aren't necessarily right and the mighty aren't powerful. It's the, it's the meek and it's the lowly and it's the humble. It's those who are poor in spirit, who are powerful and who are mighty. And Jesus would say in God's kingdom, everybody's important. Everybody's welcome. Everybody has dignity and intrinsic value. He would go on, he would say that the kingdom of heaven is not about doing right things. A lot of people thought that's what it was. He was like, no, it's not about doing right things. It's not about believing right things. It's not even about praying right things. It's so much better than that. But it was new and it was different and it was confusing and it seemed upside down to them. It definitely seemed backwards and it did not seem to be the key to this life that they were really looking for or hoping for. Certainly didn't seem to be the key to overthrow the Roman Empire. And so they were wondering like, is this worth it? Is it gonna do anything? So Jesus came up with these quirky little stories like this one that were called parables to help people understand the intricacies of his kingdom. And so he says, God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. It's like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field, which again, seems odd to us because of like modern technology, right? Like we have banks, we don't hide things in fields anymore. I mean, just this past weekend, we sent our son who's away at college money and I never had to leave the house. Like I got on my phone, I tapped into our bank account, I sent him money, it wired it to his account, no fees, nothing. It was great, it was so easy, right? Well, that's not their world. They didn't have banks. They had money changers, but money changers couldn't be trusted and they would charge like, insane amounts of interest to, to watch, quote, watch your money, but they would often take your money and then change it whenever you needed it. So people would just hide it. They would buy land, they'd hide their money in a field, they would hide it away, and this guy stumbles across one of these deposits or kind of treasures of money that's hidden in this field, right? So he comes across this land and in his, or this treasure, and in his excitement, he hit it again. So like apparently he dug it up and then he hit it again, probably in a better spot this time. And this time he sells everything he owns to get enough money to buy the field. Now talk about your priorities changing. This guy's just hanging out in a field. He comes across something that's super valuable to him. And he decides this is worth everything I have. So he digs it up, hides it someplace where hopefully nobody will find it. And I imagine he literally runs back to town. And you can relate to this, right? Like when you find something you hope nobody else discovers, you probably run into literally everybody you know. Like I imagine this guy bumping into everybody that he knows, all of them trying to get his attention and him just ignoring them all, trying to focus on this thing that he wants to buy. Like he is locked in. I mean, for weeks, all he can think about is this piece of land. He's gotta get to closing. He's gotta get to closing. We gotta close the deal so that I can have this treasure, right? He's so excited, he sells everything so that he can have this one treasure. Now, again, if this causes you a whole bunch of questions, welcome to the first century followers of Jesus. They had questions all the time. I mean, like, if you're sitting here wondering, like, is this even ethical? Like, can we buy, like, is this about stealing or what is, like, what's going on? Like, can we buy land that isn't ours so that we can have treasure that somebody else's and hope that they never find out about it? And they're probably thinking all the same things, but Jesus, like, does what he does and he doesn't even acknowledge their questions. He just keeps going and he says this time, again, the kingdom of heaven 
is like a merchant that's on the lookout for choice pearls. So here we go. It's the same concept, just kind of a little bit different approach this time. Instead of somebody stumbling upon something great, they're actually out looking for something great, which I feel like this is one we can connect with, right? Like there are a pair of shoes right now that somebody in this room is Googling while I'm talking because they want them so bad. Like there is a house that you are trying to get and this housing market is crazy that if your lender called right now, you would get up and walk out of the room and risk public embarrassment to go to closing so that you could finally get this house, right? Like people, like we know what it's like to be on the lookout for something great. I spent an entire Memorial Day weekend one year sitting at my parents' house, like not swimming in the pool, ignoring my parents, ignoring my kids, ignoring my wife, like head down, locked onto the computer screen, searching for a mattress of all things, because everybody knows that the best time to buy a mattress is Memorial Day weekend. Like I'm not paying full price for a mattress. Like I wanted this thing, I was gonna find it. And I looked and looked and looked trying to find this mattress. Well, that's what's going on here. And just like we would, Jesus says, when he discovered the pearl of great value, when he discovered the thing that was most important to him, he sold everything he owned and he bought it. So different story. Same result, different setup, same result as the previous story. When he found what he was looking for, when he found this pearl of great value, it was worth it to him to sell everything he had so that he could have the thing that he wanted the most. And we know that feeling. We love that feeling. Any of you who have researched houses, cars, clothes, spent hours on Amazon, you know what it's like when you finally find the thing you're looking for and you lock in and you find it for the price you want. It doesn't matter if it's too much even, you will buy it. It will, like you found it, you want it, you buy it, click, it's yours. I mean, you better believe, like when I found that mattress, when I finally found the one and they delivered it to our house, like with the white glove treatment, you know, like, and they set it up, they carried my old one that was like 18 years old off. And I got the best night's sleep that I had ever had in my entire life. And my wife woke up the next morning and was like, thank you for wasting the weekend. That was unbelievable. That sleep was so good. When my kids jump on the bed and they're like, please spend the money on us. You better believe it. Like it was worth it, right? Like we all know that feeling. And I know it's way more serious than a mattress or a car or shoes or clothes, but literally that's the point that Jesus is making. And it's super simple. I mean, the point that he's making is that some things are worth everything. Like some things are so valuable to you. They're so valuable to me. They're so important that they literally are worth everything. Like when something is valuable enough to you, it's worth it to you no matter what it costs you. I mean, think about it. You could go to some item in your house right now and you know you overpaid for it. Like I have things that I know I overpaid for, but it doesn't matter because it was worth it to me. Like if it cost me everything, it was so much fun. It was such a good deal, whatever. I wanted it so bad. It was worth it. Some things are worth everything, no matter what it costs you. And here's the thing. When you find those things or you find that person, you will literally change your life in light of, of the thing or the person that you have found that is so valuable to you. Like you'll literally change your life in light of the value the person on the other side of you holds. Like look at this, this happens in every dating relationship. Somebody starts dating somebody and all of a sudden, I love Italian food. You're like, what? You've never eaten Italian food in your life. I know, but she likes Italian food. So I'm gonna go eat it. I love Mexican food. No, you don't. Well, he does. So I'm gonna like, you will go shopping when you don't like shopping. You'll go, I, 
We've all seen musicals that we couldn't stand, but because the person we were with loves the musical, like we're gonna be there at the musical, right? Because the person holds so much value to us. And that's really the invitation that Jesus was offering this group of people standing on this lakeshore that day who were being challenged by this idea of should I throw away everything? Should I give up everything to follow Jesus? And it's the same invitation that he still extends to you and I today. I mean, he literally looks at us through the ages and he says, I know what you want. And it's not all these things that you try to buy. It's not all these things that you think you have to have. And I know what you want. I know you want better. I know you want better for you. I know you want better for your family. I know you want better for your kids. You want better relationships. You want a better career. You want to be better at your career. You want to be better at life. He's like, I get it. You want things to be better for your neighborhood. You want things to be better for the world. You would long for people to come together finally and have civil like conversation and, and actually like you, we all remember the good old days, like we want better. And Jesus says, I know that, I know what you want. I know what you're trying to get. He would look at us and he looked at them. He's like, but it's not found in the things that you keep trying to find it in. Like it's not found in your power or your privilege or your politics or your money or your career or your car or your bank account or even your relationships. It's not found in any of those things. He would say, it's only found in one place. It's found in me, he would say. It's found in, in Jesus. And it's found in actually reprioritizing our values or our lives to align with his values. And he would remind them and he would remind us, he would almost warn us, if you will. Hey, I want you to remember like, the values that I teach are very different than the values you embrace, and they're not gonna seem intuitive to you. They're gonna seem counterproductive. They're gonna feel like they're moving you away from the things you want because they're so upside down. They're so different, but I promise you, these values, even though they seem backwards and upside down, these values, these priorities, they will change everything when you're willing to change your life to line up with God's kingdom. And it's values, like, things that really don't make sense to us. Their values like, he would say, hey, I want you to love your neighbors, but don't stop there. Like, I want you to love your enemies too. Like, love the people who are nothing like you. Love the people who don't like you and who you could never imagine liking. I want you to love them. I want you to love other people more than you love yourself. The implication being, we all love ourselves. Like, hey, as much as you love yourself, he would say, I want you to love others that much. He would say, hey, but don't stop there. I want you to serve other people. But don't just serve the people who can serve you back. I want you to serve everybody. Serve the people who could never serve you back, who could never repay you. Go further, he would say. I want you to pray for those who are punishing you. I want you to pray for those who are persecuting you, who, those who, who feel like they are your, your worst enemy. I want you to pray for those. And I want you to share with all. I want you to share with all people, no matter if they can ever repay you or not. And he would say, and I know these seem so foreign to you, I know these seem so upside down, these, these values, they seem so backwards. And it feels like if you reprioritize your life in this way, that like, it's not gonna work. Like, it's not gonna get me where I wanna go. And he would say, no, 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 that's the whole point. Like some things really are worth everything. And these things will not only change your life, but they will change the lives of everybody around you. And they will lead you to the thing that you're wanting the most. He would say, oh, come on, following me, Jesus would say, is so valuable that it's worth it. 
Like it's worth it to reevaluate everything about yourself. It's worth it to reevaluate how you're approaching life. The guy who found the treasure in the field, the guy who finally found the pearl that he was looking for, they sold everything. I mean, they sold their animals, their house, their cars. They probably sold a business so that they could finally claim the thing that they were looking for the most. Because once you find the thing that's most important to you, once you find that thing that's worth it to you, it's worth it to you, right? To sell your car. You figure I can start another business. I'll sell my house. I can get another one. I'll sell all of my animals. I'll sell everything I have because what's most important now is claiming the treasure and then reprioritizing my life around it. So with all that in mind, let's, let's go back again. Let's go back to where we started. Think back in your mind. It's, it's 30 years after Jesus died. We're sitting in that little secret gathering. More people than just you, more people than you think are wondering like, is this worth it? Is this really going to change anything? Like, is this really gonna take off? And think about it. I mean, with the ability to look back through history, like where would you even start? How would you even begin to describe to yourself just how worth it it really is? How would you begin to describe just how different, just how better things really are? I mean, how would you, how would you begin to describe that like despite opposition, despite the setbacks, despite loss and uh, rejection and heresies and a few crazy people trying to take this thing in a whole bunch of different directions, like the movement worked. Like the promise that Jesus said would be true, like it happened and the movement took off. I mean, how would you begin to describe the, the most powerful empire you had ever known? Like, it's like a footnote in history books. Like it doesn't exist anymore. The Roman empire is gone. Caesar is obsolete and Jesus is the center, the focal point of culture, of history, of art. He is arguably the most influential person ever. And so many people know all about him. And oh yeah, remember Remember when you thought the Mediterranean Rim was big and you heard these communities that you had never heard of before? Oh, it's so much bigger, you would say. Like the world, I mean, it would take you years to just explain that the world is round, but like the world is round and there's people literally living all over it. And this message has spread all over the entire world. And it, it spread to people who were never, it was never open to before. Like now women and children are seen as integral parts of community and they're leading things and they're making things better and we should follow them and we should support them and we should give them authority. And man, they have value and they have dignity and they're people that are worth protecting. And that's all because of people who decided to follow Jesus. It's all because of Jesus that that happened. And churches, oh, churches no longer, they don't have to meet in secret at all places in the world. And there's some churches that are so big that you, would, you just can't get your minds around it. And they've done things that are so much better than anybody could ever imagine. Like churches have started some of the biggest and best hospitals in the world where people can live and die with dignity. And almost anybody, you would say, almost anybody who wants it can have a copy of both the Old and the New Testament. And oh yeah, we've, we've bound those together in a book that we call the Bible. And people have like hundreds of them sitting on shelves at their house. They have more than they could ever read. Like it's so accessible. Oh, is it worth it? Oh, is it worth it? You would say, you have no idea. You have no idea. Like Jesus really does change everything. His values his priorities, the thing he's called us to. Yeah, it costs a lot, but it's, it's worth it. 
He really did change everything. But I don't, I don't think you would stop there. I think you would look at yourself and you'd say, but like, hey, I want you to know something. Not only is it worth it for the world, which is remarkable, but I, I want you to know that you're worth it to Jesus. I, I want you to know that from his point of view, from Jesus's point of view, you're, you're the treasure in the field. You're the pearl of great value. And he took one look at you and he reprioritized everything about his life. He literally bankrupted heaven so that you could know him. He gave up everything. Think of the power and the prestige and the titles. He had it all and he walked away from all of it. And before you even knew he was out there looking for you, he literally sold everything he had so that he could know you and so that you could know him. Oh, you're worth it. You are so worth it. He gave up everything for you and for me. And so now, if we come back to today, here we are. Same question that they faced in the first century. Is it, is it worth it? And now it's like up for us to decide again, is Jesus worth it? Is following Jesus still worth it? Is following him, is reprioritizing our lives, is looking at our bank accounts differently, looking at our careers differently, looking at our children differently, looking at our relationships differently, reprioritizing how we do things and how we make decisions, like looking at how we disagree with one another, looking at how we debate, looking at how we resolve tensions and problems. Like, is it worth it? Is it worth it even if it costs us everything? It's up for us to decide. Is Jesus worth following? And if he is, what are we willing to do about it? If he is worth following, if we come to that conclusion, what are we willing to do about it? Especially so that others can know just how worth it they are to him. And that's where I want us to pick up next week. In fact, next week, you're in for a treat. One of our good friends, Sherita Hartness, is going to be back with us. And she's going to pick up the story right here. And she's going to spend some time looking at this question of how worth it we are to Jesus and how that should reprioritize our lives. So thanks so much for hanging out with us this morning. I'd love to take a second to pray for you, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, there's a, um, there's a lot to unpack there. This idea of if Jesus is worth it today, like in light of everything that we face, in light of the pressures and what feels like the pain, is it, is it worth it? Is it worth reprioritizing our lives around this old Jewish carpenter who claims to be the Messiah? And if it is, what are we willing to do about it? God, I, I pray you would grant us the wisdom to know what to do with those questions, but more importantly, I pray you'd give us the courage to do it. I pray you'd give us the courage to take steps towards you towards a growing relationship with you because I believe you are worth it because I believe we were worth it to you. You gave up everything so that we could know you. And God, every time throughout history when we look back, when we decide to follow you, you change everything. God, we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thank you guys so much for being with us today. I really appreciate it. I hope you have a fantastic week. And as Amber said, there are cookies on your way out. And trust me, they are worth it. So enjoy. We'll see you guys later.